from glory and bear our sin and shame. God, that is a truth that only you could write. So, Lord, I pray that we would accept and believe it today. Lord, that we would know that the cross is enough for any sin that we have committed. Lord, and we can repent and find forgiveness in you. And, Lord, we know the same power that rose you from the dead is at work in the heart of believers. And so, Lord, let your spirit of truth come down on us and let us be receptive to what you have to say. Lord, we love you. We praise you now in your holy name. Amen. Thank you, Evan. Mark chapter 14 is our place today. I want us to uh, back up and overlap with a little bit of the text from last week. Pick up in verse number 27 and we'll read through 42. Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 42. This is crunch time in the earthly life of the Lord Jesus. This is Thursday night, late, and it's about to happen. So here we go, verse number 27. Jesus said to them, that is his disciples, You'll all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. But Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass by him. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and he found them sleeping and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going, and behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Life is filled, sprinkled with moments that are ultimately important for us. And our reaction in and to those moments really determine what type of person we're ultimately going to be. And they also determine 
what type of place we're ultimately going to occupy. I call them defining moments. And I think the disciples had a defining moment here. Jesus also had a defining moment here. And it's uh, nowhere close to how both of them responded to their defining moment or to one of their defining moments in life. Now there's not a whole lot more I can say to you as far as introducing defining moments other than to go right into this message because if I say too much more I'm going to give away my entire message. So what do you say we just roll up our britches legs and jump right into this thing and we use this passage as kind of the, the, the scriptural context from which we pull together our thoughts on a disciple's defining moments. Because you have them and I have them. We all have them. And remember how we respond to these significant moments in life is ultimately going to shape our identity and determine the path in life that we take. So check it out. I think there are several things that this passage would affirm to us about a disciple's defining moments. Number one, this passage says that these defining moments will not be won if we are unaware of their serious implications. Serious, serious implications for defining moments. Now, what are some of the implications? That's a good question. You ought to know I'm going to give you a few. So here we go. Implication number one, defining moments will determine life's direction. They'll determine life's direction. Now check this out. This was indeed a defining moment for these, at least for these three disciples, Peter, James, and John. What they did in this crucial time, in this moment in their life, was going to determine the immediate direction of their life. Now hear me, because they missed it, because they slept through it, they lost the battle in Gethsemane. So they didn't have a snowball's chance in hot water of surviving when they got to the crowded streets of Jerusalem and they were pressured as to who they were in relation to Jesus Christ. Are you following me? You see, they didn't lose out there in public. They lost in private. And you show me somebody who blows it on a public platform and I'll show you somebody who lost the battle in private in a defining moment in their life. If we fail publicly, it's because we missed it privately. A defining moment will indeed determine the immediate direction of your life. It's no wonder that Peter failed just five, six hours later because he missed it right here in the Garden of Gethsemane. He slept through his defining moment. Now, notice again what this passage has to say. Here they were with Jesus. They were in the Garden of Gethsemane and there was something large looming ahead of them. Seems to me they should have been able to read in the tone of His voice and the expression on His face and the seriousness of His words that this was no run-of-the-mill night, that this indeed was a defining moment, something big was about to go down. They missed it and it set in stone 
what was going to happen to them over the next few hours. And you see, that's true of us as well. One of the things that I have always had interest in in ministry is what's known as church consultation. And you see, it's kind of big right now because we have so many churches, especially within the Southern Baptist Convention, that are literally dying. And church consultants, what they do if churches are strong enough and courageous enough to ask for help, they will call for a very specialized, trained group of consultants to come in and nothing is hidden before the eyes of these consultants and they go through everything. They do member interviews, they look at business meeting minutes, they look at budgets, they look at everything that they can get their hands on in the life of that church that's been published for the past 50, 60 or 70 years in order to determine why this church is dying today. And do you know what most of the time... Oh, by the way, I had a little bit of that training because I said, I'm, I'm so interested in this. And I got to sit in, you know, a couple of times with this process and it's amazing to me what can be discovered. Most of the time, it's not because something big happened and it blew it up. Most of the time, a church is dying because it set itself on a fatal course because it missed a defining moment in its life. And sometimes it's 20 or 30 years back. When I was in seminary, one of my buddies who was in the Ph.D. program at the time was pastoring a church in Fort Worth. And I'm telling you, this was a church that in its heyday in the 1970s and 80s was one of the flagship churches not only in Texas but in the Southern Baptist Convention. This is a church that, you know, if you care about these things, it kind of tells you uh, what kind of role they played in their community. They had a full gymnasium. They had a bowling alley. They had one-to-front shops, you know, kind of like a, a little mall deal. If you could dream it, this church campus that sprawled over several blocks in Fort Worth, they had it. I mean, you can just tell by looking at these facilities that at one time there was some life here. And my friend is pastoring this church, and I went out there several times uh, throughout this process, even spoke there on a number of occasions. This church, the inside, the, the, the sanctuary would seat about 1,200. Watch me. I would preach to about 35 huddled right down front. So and it was like death. So in the consultation process, began to look and try to figure out why is this church that was once so vibrant, why is she dead today? And it's just a matter of time before this building is auctioned off at a public auction when these last 35 who were all over 70 finally kicked the bucket. And we began to dig around and this is what we found. In the early 1980s, there was a pastor there and man, the church was in its heyday. But the pastor saw what was taking place. There was a demographic change going on in Fort Worth at that time. Not good, not bad, just a demographic change. And this pastor had a big heart. He saw what the change was. The, 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 the area in which they were in was transitioning and it was coming predominantly Hispanic. 
So the pastor says, we have got to reach these Hispanics. But guess what? I mean, we can have these grand ideas of having a cross-cultural church and all of that, but people just like to flock together with their own kind. Are you with me? Now, we can, we can grow beyond that, but in the initial stages of evangelism, it's not that way. It's hard for a bunch of gringos to reach a purely Spanish-speaking Hispanic culture. It's just difficult. So the pastor saw this. So he brought in a guy and began to groom him, kind of like, like, like uh, Pastor Tony D's. Brought him in and began to groom him, and this guy was beginning to reach Hispanics in all sorts of numbers, and they were coming to church. But guess what happened to those old mossy-backed Southern Baptist gringos? They didn't like that. This was their church. So the pastor says, guys, this is what we need to do. We need to sell this church. No, we don't need to sell it. We need to just give it. Let's just give it to this pastor who's doing a tremendous job of reaching this community and let's you and I go out here on the outskirts of town and we'll begin to reach another part of the suburbs of Fort Worth. And they said, no, we're not going to do it. That was a defining moment. And they did not have the character to pass the test. And today the church is not being used by anybody. It's empty buildings. It's got cobwebs in it. It's dilapidated. And the city of Fort Worth is about to condemn it to tear it down. Oh, by the way, there was another guy who said, well, if y'all are not going to go out there, I'll go out there and start a church from scratch. Guess what it's doing today? Blowing the doors off. And you see, what happened is that church missed its defining moment in life. But you know, it's true of people as well. You can do the same thing with individuals. It doesn't just work for churches. It works for individuals as well. You can look at somebody who is on skid row. And friend, most of the time you can trace it back to where they left the road, where they did not respond correctly in their defining moment and how they responded or did not respond determined the type of person they were going to be and it determined the direction of their life. That's what defining moments do. And here these boys were right in the midst of a defining moment and it determined the direction, the immediate direction of their life and they lost the battle, not in public, but they lost the battle in private because they missed this defining moment. Now... I wish there was some way I could tell you how you could know when you're in one of these pivotal decision times, defining moments of life. But the bottom line is, I can't tell you that. And the reason I can't tell you that is because of point number two, because defining moments are often disguised. They're often disguised. I mean, one of the reasons why Peter and James and John probably didn't take this moment with the gravity that they should have is because they've been in this similar scenario dozens of times before. I mean, how many times had these boys been singled out by Jesus, taken away from the group, and Jesus went off and prayed? How many times had they seen Jesus with His back against the wall, thinking there's no way out of this, and he perform a miracle and everything changes. So they had just been kind of rocked to sleep because they'd been in this scenario before. And no matter how upset or how distressed Jesus seemed to be, 
no matter what the tone of his voice communicated, no matter what his countenance appeared, we have confidence that he's going to work all this out without us, so we're just going to sit here and take a nap. You see, their defining moment was kind of disguised just as any other of the other times that they'd been in a similar scenario. Not knowing that this was it, boys. This is the time. What you do right here is going to cast the die for what you're going to do successively in the immediate few hours in the immediate future. So since they are often disguised, therefore we must be alert to His Word. Got to be alert to His Word. Notice what it is. And notice how they missed it over and over and over and over. How many times had He talked about what was going to happen to Him? And it seems that they just missed it. And notice, I mean, let me just walk you through a few of these references. Look in verse number 28. He tells them in verse number 27 that they're all going to fall and they're all going to be scattered. Verse number 27, but after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. They totally missed that. Hey, if I'd have been there, I'd have probably missed it as well. But I'd like to think if I'd have been there, I'd have said, wait, what? Huh? What? Tell, back up. Stop, up. stop the train right there. After you've been raised, what are you talking about? And they just seemed to let it go. You see, they were not paying attention very closely to His Word and what it was that He was saying. And He told them, stay here, y'all keep watch. I mean, how many more clues can he, can he have given them with His Word saying, this is a critical moment in life. This is indeed one of those defining moments. And they just snored right on through it. Hey, you know the experience. Have you ever been in one of those crux times? And, and look, a lot of times they don't happen like this and they're over. A lot of times a defining moment will stretch out for several days. Maybe for a couple of weeks. And have you ever been there and all of a sudden you come to church and you get under the preaching of God's Word and it's like God was reading your mind and He probably was because His Word seemed to address the very situation in which you were in? See, that's what was going on here. But they totally missed it. They were not attentive to what it was that Jesus was saying. Hey, you ever been there? Hey, look, I won't tell you. It doesn't happen at Grace because I think y'all afraid I'll walk out there or something. But I, I preach to churches where folk come and just snore through the message. And I'm thinking, my goodness, if you have no more interest in God's Word as it relates to your life, why do you even take the time to get out of bed and come to church? Your recliner's a whole, mi- whole lot more comfortable at home than these church chairs. Stay home and sleep. But I'm so grateful to God we don't have that at Grace Church. Thank you for not sleeping on God's Word. And hey, if God's Word is, my goodness, if God's Word is boring to us, we've got something wrong, huh? Or, or maybe, maybe we've got the wrong preacher, I don't know. But I tell guys all the time, if you can take the most exciting, life-giving, energizing book that has been inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to awaken the dead souls of dying men, if you can preach this book and make it a snore fest, something's wrong. Huh? I mean, I think you've got to be more gifted to make this thing boring than do just stand up and turn it loose. 
I mean, by nature, it's alive, it's quick, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now I commend you to God and the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all of those who are sanctified. That's this book. Huh? Man. And here these guys were non-attentive. They were not alert to God's word. But there was something else that they weren't attentive to. They... because these defining moments are often disguised and they come to us just as a normal, routine decision in life, we must be alert to His Word. What is God saying to you right now? What contemporary rhema did God give you in your quiet time yesterday that may help you understand this moment that you're facing today? See, that's why it's so important to stay current with Him. Not only must we be alert to His Word, But we also must be alert to his warning. To his warning. Look what he said in verse number 38. He said, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. Look, Jesus told him right here, he said, boys, if you don't stay alert now, you're not going to pass the temptation that's coming to you in a couple of hours. See what I'm saying? I mean, he gave a very clear warning. He said, keep watch, stay alert. You know, you remember that word, keep watch? You remember our reference in Revelation about not getting your clothes burned? Uh, It's the same word. And I would be very comfortable in saying they got their clothes burned because they slept while they should have been on watch. Hey, can I also say this? While you're asleep, your enemy's hard at work. Did you know that? If you are sleeping spiritually, I promise you, while you're asleep spiritually, the enemy is working overtime. Notice, while they were sleeping, where was Judas? What was he doing? i tell you what he was doing. He was out getting his folk, and while they were here sleeping, taking it easy, the wolf was about to knock on the door. And here Jesus says, you boys better pray that you won't fall into temptation, and went right over their head. They didn't understand. And you see, so many times that's exactly what we do. Have any of you had this experience? You ever been in in just a regular routine moment where you thought everything was just fine and all of a sudden the Spirit of God put a check in your spirit? And it was kind of a warning. Something's not right. Uh, I better put my antennas up. I better pay close attention. And you don't. And you go ahead and run roughshod into it. How's that usually turn out? It doesn't doesn't turn out well at all, does it? And you see, that's what was going on with these guys. They missed the warning that he gave. Stay awake, stay alert, that you don't fall into temptation. Now, notice number two about these defining moments. The disciples' defining moments, number one, will will not be one if we're unaware of their serious implications. And here's a problem. You never know. You might have a defining moment today. You might have a defining moment tomorrow that is going to determine the direction of your life. Man, I look back over my life and I think of some of those critical, pivotal moments and how they turned out and who I became because of them, either positive or negative. And I think, my goodness, I wish I had that shot one more time. But the bottom line is you've only got it once. And we can't afford to botch this thing. 
These moments will not be won if we're not aware of their serious implications. But number two, they'll not be won with good intentions alone. Man, I know a lot of people got good intentions. They tell me all the things they are going to do, but they seem to never get them done. And look what it was that Peter did right here. Uh, in verses 29 through 31, Peter had good intentions, did he not? I mean, look, look what he said. I mean, uh, uh, who can fault him for saying this? Even if they all fall away, yet I will not. Jesus said, hey, let me tell you something, bud. <laughs> you think you're, you're pretty strong? He said, tonight, this night, and he narrowed it down to a specific time. Before the rooster crows twice, you, yourself, big tough fisherman boy, you're going to crumble like a schoolgirl under pressure and temptation. And you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows two times. Now, why did that happen? Well, because all Peter had was good intentions. And if that wasn't enough to shut him up, he raised the stakes even higher. He put more money on the table and he said, No, I'm not going to deny. Even if I have to die with you, I won't deny you. And notice, Jesus didn't even respond to that. You, you, you ever met somebody that there's no sense in even arguing and talking with them any longer? That was Peter. No sense in even carrying this conversation any farther. Son, you're so far out of touch with reality and you're not listening to me until we might as well just cease and desist right now. But now notice why good intentions aren't enough. Jesus answered it right here in verse number 38. He said, the spirit is willing. Oh, was Peter's spirit willing? Now notice that's a little less. That's not Holy Spirit. That's the spirit of man. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, here's the deal about the flesh. When he says the flesh is weak, he means the flesh is weak in accomplishing the will of God. The flesh is pretty dang strong when it comes to accomplishing your will. Are you following me? I mean, it's strong when, you, when you're doing what you ought not do. But as far as doing something that pleases God, it's absolutely impossible. Read Romans chapter 8. Paul talks about those who are under the influence of the flesh. He said, for it is impossible for them to please God. And here Peter was. He said that because he was under the influence of the flesh. So how do you know when you're acting under the influence of the flesh? I'm so glad you asked. That's another good question. Here you go. Number one, when you're acting under the influence of the flesh, you will have fall-producing pride. Fall-producing pride. Now why do I call it fall-producing pride? Because the Bible says that a haughty spirit goes before destruction and pride goes before a fall. Hey man, you just go ahead and get proud of who you are, of what you can do, how smart you are, how good you are, how consistent you are, what you have and what you don't have. And I can tell you what's in your very near future, if you belong to God, that is, a good humbling, a good dose of eating crow, a good dose of, of having to eat some humble pie, because pride goeth before a fall. I remember my daddy used to say about some folk. <laughs> he used to say, I'd like to buy him for what he's worth and sell him for what he thinks he's worth. You know anybody like that? 
that they got a pretty exalted opinion of themselves. And if you don't think so, just ask them. They'll tell you how good they are. They'll tell you how smart they are. Well, let me tell you where that's going to get you in life. It's going to get you face down, prostrate, falling. Because pride goeth before a fall. How do you know if you're living under the influence of the flesh rather than under the influence of the Spirit of God? You'll have fall-producing pride, but number two, you'll have established spiritual patterns. Established spiritual patterns. Now check this out. You think these old boys didn't have a pattern? Notice what the Bible says. The Bible says, Jesus came to them and found them sleeping in verse number 37. And he, he scolded them pretty good. Did he not? And he goes off again and comes back. Now listen, you know, I, I, I don't know if I'd have done any different, but you know, usually when you scold me, I straighten up. Because I'm used to what my daddy used to do to me. If, if he had to speak to me twice, it wasn't good for me. You know what I'm saying? Just wasn't good. But these boys, had, they were caught in a spiritual cycle of bad patterns and bad habits. So notice in verse number 37, he catches them sleeping, rebukes them. Verse number 30, he goes away and prays the same words. He comes back again in verse number 40, and look what they're doing again. Sleeping again. He goes back and comes again to them, verse number 41, he came a third time and found them sleeping again. Now is that a pattern? If Jesus would have went off one more time and came back four times, does any of you want to guess, uh, venture a guess of what they would have been doing? Sleeping. There's no doubt. And do you know how it is that you can tell when you're living more under the influence of the flesh than you are the Spirit? Because there will be established, spiritual, unhealthy patterns in your life. Now look here. I'm not prophet nor the son of a prophet. But I can almost tell you how certain people are going to react in any given circumstance. Especially if I know those people. And especially because I've been dealing with Baptists now for about a hundred years. <laughs> I just know how it's going to go down. You know why? Because you are a creature of pattern. I'm a creature of pattern. I can almost tell you how you're going to react. I can almost tell you how this is going to go down based on looking at somebody's spiritual walk and looking at their record, looking at their history, and seeing patterns that have been established. You know, it kills me. A lot of folk go to Christian counselors and they don't even use God's Word. How the heck can you call that Christian if you don't even use God's Word? All it is is a bunch of Freudian psychology. But I want to tell you, man, when you, when you, when you, when you get to know the Word and you get to know people... You get to know yourself. You can see that, you know what? I'm broken. I'm broken. Every time I'm confronted with this scenario, this is the pattern of my life. And if you have patterns that are established, that are unhealthy, that are, that are, that are, that are always recur and take us the wrong direction, there's only one way to break those patterns. You can't do it yourself. Good intentions won't get it done. Are you hearing me? You hearing me? Good intentions won't get it. The only way to break patterns is to live in the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, we've been there, we've done that. You can't break patterns on your own because they're patterns that are ingrained. And the only way to do it 
to live victorious through the Spirit of God. And here these guys were. They had established spiritual patterns. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever wondered what your patterns are? Have you ever asked anybody? You see, this is big boy stuff. Most of, our, most of us are afraid to talk about ourselves. But have you ever asked somebody whom you respect, who might be a spiritual mentor, who might be an accountability partner, hey, can you tell me what you see in my life that's not healthy and that's not good for me as a believer nor beneficial for the kingdom of God? Do you know why it is why the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention turns down more recipients as missionaries than they accept? For that very reason. Because everybody thinks they're qualified to be a missionary. And do you know why the application process is about two and a half or three years? Because they're going to put your life under a microscope. They're going to sign a candidate consultant to you who's going to be in your business. And in about 18 months, they're going to know every tendency and every spiritual pattern that's unhealthy in your life. And based on what they observe, they're either going to say, we'll accept you or, hey, you need some serious help in these issues, with these, in these areas of life. Man, I'm telling you, it's healthy sometimes for us to get another opinion. But we're so dadgum fragile today. <laughs> huh? Maybe we all ought to apply to be candidates for the International Mission Board. <laughs> Just to have somebody look at our life and see these patterns. i got to run. Number next, not only... If you're living in the flesh where you have fall-producing pride, not only will you have established spiritual patterns, but you will identify more like the old person rather than the new person. Here's the deal. You do know that when you were born again, the Bible says, For if any man is in Christ, old things have passed away, for all things have become new. For if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. Did you know that? You're a new creation. You're not reformed. He doesn't just start working on the old man and, and making him look better. You're a new person. But here's the deal. If you're not walking under the influence of the Spirit but under the influence of the flesh, you're going to look more like the old person than the new person. Now I want you to see this. Look, look, look what the Bible says right here in verse number 37. He, that is Jesus, came and found them sleeping and said to Peter... Now notice this. You see how those... What I just read is in black. That's the words of Mark. Now he's about to quote Jesus. And look what he says. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? This is the first and the only time that Jesus refers to Peter as Simon since he called him to be an apostle in Mark chapter number 3. Because immediately when he calls him to be a disciple and to be an apostle, guess what he does? The Bible says he changed his name. And he changed it to Peter, which means stone. Because that's what he was going to make him. He's going to make him a rock. And now here Peter is asleep. And Jesus comes back and Jesus doesn't even call him by his new name. What he calls him? He calls him Simon. You know what he's saying? He's saying, son, you're not giving any indication at all that you've been changed. You've been walking with me now for three years. And you look right now just like you did when I found you three years ago. 
You look like the old person. My goodness. I hate to admit how many times I look more like the old man than I do the new man. But that's what happens when we're walking under the influence of the flesh. And I want to tell you, we're not going to attract anybody to give a look at Christ seriously if we ourselves aren't looking like a new person, the new person whom He's made us. Notice number next. These type of defining moments will not be won with good intentions alone because of the weakness of the flesh, but they will be won by knowing the will of the Father. Now notice what it is that Jesus said here in verse number 36. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Hey, can I say to you that Peter, James, and John lost the battle, and because they lost the battle, they failed in their hour of temptation on the streets of Jerusalem two or three hours later. Can I say to you that Jesus Christ won the victory in Gethsemane? You see, the cross played out because He'd already won in Gethsemane. What is settled in prayer will be worked out in life. And because He won it in Gethsemane, the cross was a piece of cake. This is where He won it. Hey, here's where the battle took place. It was in Gethsemane. More so than even on the cross of Calvary. Now let me show you that. Let me substantiate this. How are you going to win? You're going to win by knowing the will of the Father. Check this out. Now how are you going to know the will of the Father? There's several things here that we can see how Jesus got to the heart of God's will. Number one, there was some anguish of soul, was there not? Look what he says. And in, in verse number 33, he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be very distressed. Guess what that word is? Some of you may have a translation that says amazed. He was amazed. Now get this. He knew from before the foundation of the world that in his incarnation he was ultimately headed where? He was ultimately headed to the cross. But there were some implications of that that in his humanity he began to sense only when he was about two or three hours out from it. And he was amazed and what this was going to require of him, and what this was going to entail. And because of this, there was anguish of soul. Look what he was. He was amazed. He was very distressed and troubled. Some translation says, encompassed with grief. As a matter of fact, he told them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Can you imagine? Here was the Son of God. And he says to them, my soul is grieved to the point of death. My goodness. What was he going through? I tell you what he was going through. He was going through severe anguish of soul. Not because he was shrinking back from the cross. The Bible says in, in, in Hebrews chapter 12 that he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. So it wasn't the physical suffering. It wasn't the physical agony. But there was some anguish of soul going on here. And can I tell you something that I pick up in this verse? Notice what he says as he prays in verse number 36. He said, Abba. Can I say to you that as a missionary, a cross-cultural missionary, 
who will struggle all of my life with a second and third language. You know, I had rather do anything in my second and third language other than pray. I tell When I go to Brazil and I'm visiting a church that we planted or a church where we have trained the pastor and certified him through the Baptist College of Florida, when I walk in that building, I tell that pastor, now listen here, I had rather preach a 45-minute sermon in Portuguese than I had pray the closing prayer. You following me? Don't you dare call on me to pray the closing prayer. And they don't understand that. They say, but what? you're our teacher. You've taught us theology. You've taught us hermeneutics. You've taught us New Testament and Old Testament. You've taught us pastoral ministry. Why don't you want to pray? And you know what? I never understood why praying in another language was so hard for me. I didn't. I thought something was wrong with me. And I talked to a veteran missionary of about 30 years one time and I was telling him about it. You know what he said? This is what he said. He said, brother, that's natural. He said, let me tell you why. He said, because prayer is the most intimate form of communication a human being has. It's an intimate conversation between you and your heavenly Father. And anytime you talk with Him, you naturally resort to your mother tongue. And do you know what Jesus did right there? He resorted to His mother tongue. His mother tongue is Aramaic. Guess what Abba is? It's Aramaic. You see what I'm saying? He was getting down to business. It wasn't time to speak Greek. It wasn't time to speak Hebrew. It was time to communicate with my soul. And when I communicate with my soul, I communicate in my mother tongue, in my heart language. So he was crying out to God. My theory is the only reason he began to speak in Greek was so those boneheads that was back up the hill sleeping could hear it and understand it maybe. But he was in anguish of soul. Check out, hey, that's how he got to the will of the Father. Now look what else he did. How else do you know the will of the Father? Number one, Jesus come to grips with God's will through anguish of soul, but he also come to grips with it through hours of supplication. He kept going back, and look what he was doing. He was falling down on the ground, prostrate, praying to God. And here's what he said. Look what he said. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Do you know what he just admitted right there? Guess what he just affirmed? Not admitted. Guess what he just affirmed? He just affirmed that his Father has all power. He is omnipotent. There is nothing that he wants to do that he cannot do. Are you with me? So look what he says. He says, Father, all things are possible for you. But guess what else he says? Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Can I ask you a question? Do you believe that God is omnipotent? Do you believe that there's anything that He cannot do? So when you pray, does that give you confidence or no? Gives us great confidence, huh? Because He's a God that all has to do is think and universe and stars explode throughout whatever you call it, before there was stars and universes. All he has to do is think it. So let me ask you a question. If God is omnipotent, how come sometimes you pray and He don't do it? Because you see, that's right where Jesus was. He said, all right, God, you are omnipotent. You are all-powerful. Now here's my request. 
make this cup pass from me. And God the Father said, no. Could you imagine? God the Son saying no to God the Father. Now here's the deal. Write this down. I want to give you some theology today. If you don't walk out of here with anything else, walk out of here with this. Here's the statement. God's omnipotence is only regulated by His righteousness and love. Did you hear it? Let me say it one more time. Let me back up and give it to you again. God's omnipotence is only regulated by His righteousness and love. So why is it that God the Father said no to God the Son in a defining moment when He said, Make this cup pass from me. And He did it because of His overarching love for those sinners whom Jesus was going to redeem and buy and ransom and purchase in just a few hours on Calvary's cross. And guess what Jesus did? Hey, notice the prayer life of Jesus. Mark this down as well. Prayer is not superimposing your will on God's will. It's not. And man, I get so aggravated when I hear some of my brethren demanding that God do this and that. Son, listen, if you can demand God to do something, He God, you are. Shut up. This is the omnipotent God who only relates to you and you only exist because of His grace and mercy. Who are you to speak to Him like that? Prayer is not me superimposing what I want on what God wants. It's just the opposite. When you spend time in anguish of soul and hours of supplication, God's perfect will is superimposed upon my will. And you see, that's exactly what happened. And look, I know, for all you theologians, I know that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. And the writer of the Hebrews says that He learned things from the things that He suffered. So in His humanity, He was learning something. He learned that prayer is having God superimpose His will upon my will. And as soon as the perfect, sinless, de- I mean He's deity, He's God, as soon as Jesus Christ realized that this is settled in heaven from eternity past. This cup is God's will. He got up and he was good. That's all you got to know. Did you hear me? That's all you got to know. That my God is omnipotent. And he would do this for me because he certainly has the ability. He hasn't done it, so why hasn't he done it? For greater righteousness or for greater love that in my frailty, in my finite mind, I can't understand, but I've got to trust Him and He's made it okay with my soul. It's well with my soul because I know this is His will. Son, you can get up and face Calvary's cross then. Are you with me? And that's exactly what He did. So how do you know God's will? Through anguish of soul sometimes. It doesn't come easy. It comes with a price, guys through hours of supplication. Can I just add another one? Through knowledge of Scripture, God is not in the business of hiding His will from us. There's plenty of statements in Scripture that says, this is the will of God. It's right there in Scripture. That's why we ought to pour our lives into it because our life does depend upon it. Check out another one. Through counsel with the saints. 
Now I know ultimately that nobody can say what God's will is for your life. That's between you and God and His Word and hours of supplication and anguish of soul. But can I say this to you? I don't understand this. For the life of me, I don't understand this. But I guess I was once like that. Once like this. Man, if I'm in a defining moment and I've got to know that this is the path God has for me and this is God's will, let me tell you what I do. I, I don't plow that row alone. I'm on the phone with people who I know and who I know is walking with God and who I know are in tune with the Spirit and have knowledge of His Word. So I pick up the phone I'll call John Wilson. I'll pick up the phone and I'm buzzing Cliff. I've got several pastor friends that are just part of my spiritual safety net because the Bible says in a multitude of counselors there's what? There's safety. Now check this out. Here these boys were. There were three of them. There were three of them there, right? They were all probably leaned up on the same tree snoring. Spit, drool running out the corner of their mouth. I mean, can't you see it? After he came back the first time, I would have called a prayer meeting. I said, guys, let's huddle here for a minute. What is it that we are missing here? Because did you, look at him. Did you hear what he said? We need to get together. Let's put our hearts together and our minds together. What is it that we're missing? And I would have had, a, I would have had me an impromptu counselor meeting right there trying to figure out what was going on. So let me tell you, defining moments are not intended for you to plow them by yourself. God has indeed put a community of saints around you. And He's put them around you for this reason. So sometimes just pull up and ask somebody, say, Hey, man, I'm going through... Hey, would you be willing to make yourself vulnerable and say, Can you help me with this? This is what I'm facing. And I know this is big and I can't afford to get this wrong. Can you help me here with this? But yet I see folk all the time who tell me that God's called them to do this, 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 and buddy, they strike off and they don't ask the first person. Forget the fact that there's people around them that's been doing it longer than they've been alive. Huh? Forget the fact there's people around them with four times the experience and nine times the education. They just, by God, strike off and do it on their own. Listen to me. You're walking in the flesh, Jack. That's fall-producing pride. And I can say that you're going to come back with your tail tucked between your legs having missed a defining moment of your life just like these old boys did. Huddle together with somebody who knows how to get a hold of the throne, with somebody who knows God's Word, somebody who's familiar with walking in the Spirit and track through this defining moment. i got to hurry. How much? Woo, i got two minutes. Here we go. Look. <laughs> a, di a disciple's defining moments will not be one if we're unaware of their serious implications will not be one with good intentions alone, but they can be one, get this, there's no I here, it's because He won. Because He won. You see what? He won in Gethsemane wins for us. We share in His victory and He won it right here in Gethsemane. It's going to be played out on the cross tomorrow. But He won it in Gethsemane. What did he win? How did he win? Well, he won because he overcame the cup. Check this out. Check this out. Remove this cup from me. Why was his soul shrinking back? Let me tell you, it wasn't because he was scared of a few nails that are going to be driven through his hands. He wasn't a weenie. 
was shrinking back because that cup had in it the sin of the world. And his soul was in anguish because here was the perfect, pure Son of God. Never had he known sin in his life. And he was about to drink the cup that has the sin of the world in it. Paul says, He who knew no sin was going to be made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And his soul was shrinking back from sin. Oh dear God, if we had the same view of sin as he did, we'd be a lot better off, huh? Huh? I remember what Spurgeon used to say. He said, we'd be better off if we'd treat sin like a rattlesnake rather than a powder puff. But here he was, the cup of the sin of the world. The guys, listen to me. Because he drank that cup, you're clean. Are you with me? You are clean. He drank every sin that had ever been committed past, that was being committed present, and that will be committed future by His people. He drank it. He drank it. He took it. And because of that, thank God, I'm clean. I'm clean. Because He drank it for me. Check it out. i got to hurry. Not only did He overcome the cup filled with the sin of the world, but He overcame the cup of God's wrath. You see, here's why he was shrinking back. The one who had had perfect communion with God the Father since before the foundation of the world because he is eternal. Eternally God, second member of the Holy Trinity. Known perfect fellowship with him. He knew he was about to endure on behalf of wicked sinners like me the unmitigated wrath of God. Only... Somebody who's infinite in nature can do that because he was infinite. He bore the wrath of God, the full measure of God's wrath for a finite amount of time. For six hours on one Friday, from nine to three, he bore the infinite wrath of God. He paid the price for every sin for every white lie, for every child molester, for every murderer. He paid the full price of it. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He stood in my place and your place. Do you understand why only an infinite God can do that? Let me tell you something. If God would have poured out His his wrath on a finite human being that was not God in nature and makeup, He would have obliterated them. And He endured it. And He conquered it. He satisfied it in a finite amount of time. Now get this. Because you're not infinite. If you're never born again, you will endure the wrath of God for an infinite amount of time. Do you see the difference? The God-man who was infinite in nature, he endured God's unmeasured wrath for a finite amount of time and it was over. But for a human being who's never been born again and who is, because he's a human being and mortal, is finite in nature, God can't pour it out on you all at once. But righteousness demands that sin be paid for. And the only way he can do it is stretch it out for an infinite amount of time. That's suffering in eternity. 
This might be a defining moment in your life where God's saying to you how you respond today just might determine your eternity. Are you willing to humble yourself and accept what Christ did on Calvary's cross in your stead? Or are you going to be prideful enough, stubborn enough, hard-headed enough to endure it yourself infinitely throughout eternity? If it's a defining moment in Jesus' name, make it good. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. God, may we be alert to it. May we be hearers. May we be doers. God, may we not 